And I'm delighted to be able to welcome uh, Chris Husbands to lead us through this minefield of what's actually happening in relation to schools. Uh, since the beginning of, of this year, since the beginning of January, Chris has been the new director of the Institute of Education at the University of London, which I think historically has been one of the best pulpits from which to um, look out at the educational scene. Chris follows in a long line, as you'll know, of distinguished directors who've had really interesting and innovative things to say about um, education. He's had enormous experience himself, both as a teacher and as a teacher educator, latterly as a teacher educator at the universities of East Anglia and Warwick before he came to the Institute. But the most important thing about Chris is that deep down he is that wisest form of professional. He is a history teacher. <laughs> and, and I'm sure we will we'll pick up some flavor of that time. So thank you very much indeed, Chris. We look forward to hearing what thank you have to say. Well, th th thank you very much, and, and thanks very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to, to be here. And I have now a clicker to press. So let's see whether it works. It does work. Right, okay. Well, in his diary for Thursday, uh, the 10th of November 2005, uh, Chris Mullin, then Labour MP for some of them, wrote to, to the Education Department where Ruth Kelly spent 40 minutes talking me through plans for the shake-up of education. The proposed reforms don't sound so wicked. It's about giving working-class parents the same choice that middle classes already enjoy by virtue of their social mobility and sharp elbows. Maybe, but I still worry about a free-for-all leading to more rather than fewer sink schools. And it's a reminder that the landscape of education policy, devolution, choice, the relationship between education and social class, the sense that structural changes can impact on all of these, isn't new. And a reminder, too, that the unintended consequences of policy may be as significant as the planned intentions of education reform, warnings perhaps for any minister in a hurry. In the time that I've got this evening, I want to explore some of the ways in which the policies and practices of the new government are likely to affect the school system uh, and the intentions and tensions that may come out of that, particularly given the coalitions addressing questions that divide the two parties. Um, I'll begin by talking about the inheritance. Uh, New Labour, of course, famously came to power on a promise that its top three priorities would be education, education, education. It had a chief advisor on school standards, a former professor at the Institute of Education, who argued that it was the government's job to drive change in every classroom in the country based on a commitment to deliver on standards, not structures. In practice, the distinction was less clear-cut, and looked different under different Secretaries of State. In its early years, New Labour continued, and in some ways extended, conservative policies of devolution and choice. Private sector involvement in education was enhanced through the academist policy and through the use of private contractors to deliver large change programmes. This created at best a patchwork of different kinds of schools, at worst a hierarchy. That said, New Labour went somewhere in encouraging collaboration and support between schools rather than outright competition. And most notably, under Ed Balls as Secretary of State for Education, academies were brought into the fold of their respective local authorities' families of schools. On standards, New Labour's record was mixed. Its flagship initiative, the National Strategies, produced early improvements in literacy in numeracy schools, but this stalled. Furthermore, 
as with most such blanket interventions, they benefited more able and advantaged pupils to a greater degree than their less able and less advantaged peers. This new Labour's understanding of the impact of some of its policies and the complexities of local challenges developed, its attention turned to narrowing the gap between the most and the least privileged. This led to more targeted policies, including the overarching Every Child Matters programme and the London Challenge programme, each bringing additional funding and contextualised support for schools and other institutions operating in most challenging circumstances. The investment paid off to some extent. By 2008, England was the only country in the world where schools in the capital outperformed schools nationally. The numbers of lower attaining pupils fell, and the number of those not in education, employment or training, 16 to 19, also fell. However, one of the biggest disappointments in New Labour's time in office was its failure to narrow the attainment gap overall. The longer term picture may be kinder to New Labour in this regard. Evidence from the States suggests that New Labour's significant investment in early years provision may prove effective in, in addressing intergenerational effects on educational trajectories in the very long term. But for the time being, the attainment gap remains real, an open flank for rhetorical attack from an incoming government. Another important legacy of New Labour was its efforts to reprofessionalise teachers along a managerial model. In contrast to a traditional model of professionalism that emphasised autonomy, the curriculum as secret garden, in the words of a 1950s Conservative minister, the managerial model offered rewards, performance-related promotion, advanced professional development, in return for the acceptance of pupil performance targets and enhanced accountability. Despite this programme of reform, New Labour made relatively few changes in many areas, including initial teacher education, which remained based around partnerships between universities and schools established in the last years of the Conservative regime. The same could broadly be said of professional development, although this became more school-based and school-led in later years. Lack of time means I'll note two other aspects of the inheritance in passing only. An emphasis on reform of the curriculum to engage disadvantaged and disaffected pupils, particularly through vocational and skills-based approaches, and the children's agenda of Every Child Matters, with the aim of embedding multi-agency working across teachers and other members of the children's workforce. Turning to the, um, education, uh, the coalition's main policies on education, there were some, the, uh, these were some of the main outcomes of New Labour's education policy. A diversity of school types, an uneasy mix of competition and collaboration between schools, a stubborn attainment gap, new type of teacher professionalism, ostensibly progressive reform of <coughs> curriculum, and early steps towards multi-agency working. Education now faces the stringencies of public spending reductions under the coalition. Of course, education is escaping the worst of the budget cuts, but schools still face real-term cuts. The Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives came to the coalition agreement, and, and that's its summary on education, with quite different trajectories in terms of policy development. For the Liberal Democrats, with a strong local government base and an influential <coughs> social liberal wing, the focus was on local governance and the role of local government in developing area-based solutions to long-term problems, coupled with explicit commitments to social justice. The pupil premium was developed by the Liberal Democrats 
as a mechanism for putting additional resources into schools to pay for the additional costs of educating the most disadvantaged. For Conservatives, education policy was increasingly conserved in cultural restorationist terms around a rhetoric of a traditional curriculum, discipline and standards, with local government bypassed in favour of a school-led system. The key elements of coalition policy on schools are now becoming much clearer. There's a strong focus on improving performance in relation to international competitors. One of the ministers has said this is a new approach for a Conservative government, looking outwards instead of, although we might might say as well as, backwards. Uh, There's an emphasis on the quality of teaching, with substantial changes to teacher education. In the curriculum, a strong leaning towards knowledge rather than attitudes or skills, deriving from the work of E.D. Hirsch in the United States, producing a return to a largely traditional curriculum. The underlying driver of policy appears to be a renewed pursuit of school autonomy and parental choice, with fairly radical supply-side reform. Of course, in line with the free market at the strong state, central steerage by performance indicators remains strong, with much sharper accountability via measures of efficiency. What all this suggests is a policy strongly conservative in tendency. However, the coalition agreement, uh, at least, has retained much of the rhetoric of new labour in terms of its commitment to addressing disadvantage. The opening sentence there, we need to reform our school system to tackle educational inequality. It's this rhetoric that plays most strongly to social liberals amongst the liberal democrats. Indeed, as concern with closing as opposed to narrowing the attainment gap suggests an even greater ambition than the previous government. Equally, there's continued commitment to early years provision. The wider children's agenda has gone, exemplified by the renaming of the Department of Children, Schools and Families as the Department for Education, and with it, much of the role of local authorities in coordinating and planning complex integrated services. In short, the coalition sees education policy as substantially schools policy, and conservative influence is dominant. Now, the premise of these lectures is that the coalition is unusual in not having been founded on a crisis or as a result of a gentlemanly agreement. The assumption is that the policies represent compromises between the two parties. But despite continued rhetoric of fairness in social policy from the Deputy Prime Minister, it's difficult to see any real evidence of a Liberal Democrat footprint on schools' policy. Given the salience of education in the national debate about the allocation of opportunity and the access of the most disadvantaged social goods, there is the real possibility of a growing gap between rhetoric and policy outcomes. And that may prove difficult for the coalition to manage over the longer term. Overall, the coalition's programme of education reform is extraordinarily ambitious. Curriculum, assessment, governance, training, performance management, central administrative structures, funding models are all being reformed simultaneously and at high speed, and in a way that will generate a substantial cultural and organisational revolution in the structures of English education. Almost none of the architecture of labour years remains, 
the Qualifications and Curriculum Agency has got the Children's Workforce Development Council, the British Educational Communications and Technology Agency are all going. The General Teaching Council will follow. Ofsted, the, school work of the school's inspectorate, has been substantially refocused. The Training and Development Agency for Schools and the National College for the Leadership of Schools and Children's Services have been transformed. Some of these organisations' functions have been taken back within the Education Department itself. As last week's debate in the Commons on the Education Bill showed, it's not clear how far these changes reflect a genuine desire to remove unnecessary bureaucracy and hand power to the people, or an audacious attempt to centralise it in the hands of a Secretary of State, who, is, who will now be directly responsible for decisions over the curriculum, for example. The pace at which the Department is pushing its programme of reform is elevating the level of risk. The evidence from wide-ranging reform programmes in complex, open systems is that the outcomes are rarely predictable and frequently perverse. There may well be a danger of ministers seeking to run the education system as they would wish it to be, or as they remember it from their own educational experience, rather than as it is. As of the new Labour, the main challenges will be in relation to coherence and equity. And there are deep tensions here, and I'll explore those in three areas that will frame the major part of what I want to say. The first is teaching quality and standards. The second is, the relation, is relationships between schools. And the third, the attainment gap. Now, a crucial element of any school's system is, of course, its teachers. Um, wherever I may think of some parts of the recently published school's white paper, I agree with its title, The Importance of Teaching. A range of research from the UK and the United States has shown that teacher quality impacts on pupil attainment more than any other in-school factor. It's also the case that the Coalition's policies on workforce development typify its approach to the school system more generally, which means looking at its proposals on teaching quality in a considerable sense. Consistent with the Coalition's principle of the devolution of responsibility, schools that have been rated as outstanding by Ofsted are to become lead players in relation to teacher training and professional development working with wider clusters of schools. But you might be surprised to hear me say, as head of one of the largest university providers of teacher education, that I'd welcome the increased involvement of schools in teacher training. Where schools feel they have the desire and the capacity to become involved, they should define the content and priorities of teacher training and play a large part in delivering that training. And anyway, this is a question of a direction of travel that's been in place since the early 1990s. What I would say is that the international evidence is that the involvement of higher education in teacher education is critical in terms of the strategic development of the system and the delivery of high quality. The relationship between higher education and schools in teacher education is a question of balance rather more than principle. Although the white paper gives a rather different impression.
There's a wider concern within the sector that the ideological preoccupation with devolution to schools could break up what is currently effective in current teacher education arrangements, including good management of teacher supply, quality control, and cost efficiencies. For example, the wholesale transfer of funding and functions to schools would move planning for teacher supply onto the independent actions of what are effectively 22,000 small businesses. It would also make it more difficult to, allocate, to, to link the allocation of teacher education funding to quality of provision, which is currently a statutory responsibility made on the training and development agency for schools. If schools were to become commissioners of teacher education, universities would need to contract with individual schools, almost certainly pushing up the cost of any contribution that they continued to make to initial teacher education. As we've discovered through an internal market in the health service, that commissioning models are rarely cheap and rarely efficient. Michael Gove's related notion of teaching as a craft also runs the risk of undermining the longer-term health of the teaching profession. Few schools have extensive expertise in the underpinning assumptions of subject pedagogies which drive much professional learning, however expert they are in delivering the highest quality teaching and learning. And we know from Peter Blatchford's evaluation of uh, the work of classroom assistants that under-trained adults tend to focus on task completion rather than academic progress. For these reasons, wholly school-based initial teacher education could be expected to create a cohort of outstanding classroom managers who may be relatively weak at supporting pupil learning and achievement. Thankfully, there's some evidence that ministers seem to be drawing back from a totally atomised system of teacher training left entirely to schools. Most of the head teachers I speak to favour a continuing partnership with universities. If that's the case, the reforms to initial teacher education could still be positive. If the proposed teaching schools set out in the white paper are developed as close networks of schools with strong relationships with higher education and the possibility of emerges of a structure that draws on the best of what we know about good adult learning, that is context-based, research-informed and driven by the connectivity between research and practice. It might not be wildly dissimilar from medical training models and much might be learned from the way in which uh, medical deaneries operate. It will be for schools and universities to populate policies in a collaborative way <coughs> stave off a race to the bottom on price and quality. Um, easier said than done, you may say. It's worth adding that in no country have initial teacher education and teaching standards been handed over wholesale to schools. In uh, the frequently cited highest performing systems, the reverse is the case. Um, initial teacher education is university-led and strongly focused on knowledge of and for teaching. Of course, driving change in initial teacher education is not the fastest way for any government to improve the effectiveness of teaching and raise standards. 
We currently train something like 30,000 new teachers a year in a workforce of 400,000. We also need strategies to improve the performance of existing teachers. Unfortunately, the white paper has relatively little to say on this. There are not the same policy levers as there are for initial teacher education, and existing provision is decidedly patchy. However, it will again, I think, be for schools, universities and others to grasp the nettle of an overarching vision for teacher professional learning if uh, provision of uh, continuing professional development is not to become home the uh, preserve of the free market. Um, the coalition has outlined a policy framework clearly intended to loosen up the supply side of teaching. We have the rapid expansion of the number of academies, now that independent state schools, the introduction of free schools, which will operate on the same legal basis as academies. At the same time, there is to be a further erosion of the local authority role and a rowing back on efforts to bring academies into local frameworks. At one stage, academies were required to participate in local behaviour partnerships in which all schools in an area to cooperate to accommodate excluded pupils. The school admissions code is uh, to be simplified, which may be uh, a code for relaxed. The attitude is very much one of freeing up schools to pursue their own self-interest, with the assumption that this will raise standards in the system overall. What the White Paper proposes is that we need a diversity of school providers. This in turn requires us to harness all the energy and talent that can benefit our school system, bringing in education charities, faith groups, parents and community groups, and other not-for-profit providers <coughs> to their schools. However, some of you will have spotted immediately that is indeed a quote from the White Paper, but from the 2005 White Paper, published by uh, Labour, uh, when Mr Blair was still Prime Minister. And that's important because uh, the development of policy that we're seeing now is not in many ways wildly different from uh, emphases that were there uh, in the policies of the previous government. Uh, this strand of policy um, is based on, um, or at least justified by, um, rather selective policy borrowing and selective citing of international research evidence whether from Sweden, Canada, or the United States. This is the publicity still for the uh, film Waiting for Superman, um, about uh, charter or uh, academy-type schools in the United States. Yeah. A piece of uh, interesting pro-charter school um, uh, propaganda. The problem here is that for all the recent policy tourism, there's actually very little hard evidence that competition drives up standards. What evidence there is suggests, unsurprisingly, that there are limits to what any school can achieve. Most American charter schools, model for academies and free schools, perform on a profile that is similar to American uh, standard public schools. There is even with, this is even with the charter schools sometimes very significant additional resources. Whilst free schools promoted as parent-led schools, are likely to remain a niche urban preoccupation, the new approach to academies 
they very well transform the school sector by fueling the competition that creates this linear movement. What the coalition has done is uh, to allow all schools rated outstanding to seek the freedoms that academies have from local authority funding. There's to be some encouragement to collaboration and new collectivities. For example, federations of schools, chains of academies run by the same sponsor. Along with universities, trusts and private companies, these groupings will be offering services to schools and support to struggling schools. Parallel to this, the network of outstanding head teachers, known as National Leaders of Education, is to be expanded. In addition to leading their own schools, these heads to work to increase the leadership capacity of other schools to help raise standards. <coughs> School improvement in struggling schools is a hard grind. There are strong grounds for supposing that a more structured approach to school-to-school -school support may yield results. Indeed, there's an argument that local authorities were never themselves a very effective body for some of the roles they were expected to perform, particularly in relation to school improvement and supporting schools that are the most challenged. So it may well be a good thing that the coalition has been brave enough to recognise this and focus their functions to those that they're most they are the most appropriate and efficient body for, such as school place planning, organisational <coughs> school transport and other services which it's difficult to organise at school level. But as with teacher training, the danger is that the principle of subsidiarity appears to have been pursued at any cost. The decision has been made to devolve to school level with the hope that other services will fit around that. This raises issues of sustainability for services that probably do need to stay with local authorities in order to ensure that they remain affordable and accessible for all schools. For example, services for children with physical and sensory impairments. So we may find ourselves rebuilding some of these structures not many years from now. Another scenario is that we see the emergence of a plethora of larger school chains, as has been the case in Sweden, that operate entirely independently of local authorities. It is the case that we need to expose the most disadvantaged students to the best teachers. As this is unlikely to happen through directional labour, Imaginative forms of teacher deployment, facilitated through clusters, federations or chains, could be a positive outcome of such new structures. In either case, with other coalition's incentives to encourage stronger sports sorry. <coughs> In either case, with other coalition's incentives to encourage stronger schools to support struggling schools will be sufficient remains a moot point at this stage. It must continue to toughen up on those applying to become academies and be insistent on the naming schools that they're planning to support. I want to turn finally to the attainment gap. As I've noted, a very strong theme in Labour and coalition policy has been the need to address the attainment gap between pupils from advantaged and disadvantaged backgrounds, a gap that frequently remains wider in England than in many competitive countries. This is an area where it's difficult to separate education policy from wider social policy, such as the um, education maintenance allowance introduced by the previous government to support the costs faced by 16 to 19 year olds in staying at school. Uh, my colleague Leon Feinstein's research 
based on birth cohort studies data, confirms that families, not schools or teachers, matter most in terms of children's educational attainment. And these effects emerge very early in a child's life. And this is one of Leon's graphs. Um, that's very striking. We start with the red line is pupils of high socioeconomic status who score highly on early paediatric tests. The uh, yellow line is children of high socioeconomic status who score poorly on paediatric tests. Low socioeconomic status children with high early rank, low socioeconomic status with children with low early rank. And what you see very clearly is that by the age of 42 months, so before children get into the school system, uh, the, what's happening early on is switched around. Uh, low scoring, high socioeconomic status children have improved. And that gap doesn't close. Uh, and it doesn't close at any point through the school system. On this basis, the coalition is correct to maintain investment and to focus providers on developing children's school readiness. In relation to schools policy, the picture is more mixed. The outcome will depend to some extent on the kinds of relationships that emerge between schools in the context of greater autonomy for all of them. The research evidence suggests that achieving greater social mix within individual schools will do most to help close the attainment gap. The effect of having a critical mass of supportive, positively motivated pupils is to lift the performance of all pupils. Of course, it's unlikely that many middle-class parents would sacrifice what they saw as their own children's performance to enhance that of more disadvantaged children. Indeed, it's a matter of concern that some of the free school proponents appear to be keen to develop schools that are most likely to attract the sort of children they'd want their own offspring to mingle with. Given the importance of suburban swing voters to any government's electoral prospects, this has always been a real challenge for a fair education policy. Labour failed to tackle this problem. Coalition doesn't produce sufficient checks and balances against competition and atomization among schools. The problem is six schools and a widening attainment gap could become very great indeed. As you expect from their other policies, the coalition's assumption is that serious supply-side reforms will so empower parents as consumers that the dynamics of schooling change. The overriding problem, however, is that nothing is distributed in ways that provide a basis for fairness. Not housing, not schools, not information. So it's in this context that we should consider the coalition's flagship policy for closing the attainment gap, the pupil premium. In the first instance, this will provide an additional £430 a year in additional funding for every pupil who's eligible for free school meals. In principle, this positive discrimination is to be welcomed. However, the pupil premium essentially already existed through area-based grants and categoric funding, and it had little impact on either school admissions or the attainment gap more directly. 
the new funding is not substantially higher. The Commission argues that attaching it to pupils will make it more attractive for high-performing schools to admit pupils uh, from poor backgrounds. However, we're moving from a world of categoric funding to disbursement of funding at schools' discretion. In the context of flat funding and real term cuts, there's a danger that at this present level, the pupil premium will not be noticed, let alone be targeted in schools in the most effective way. The assumption must be that schools will seek to use the pupil premium to maintain activities they're currently funding um, and will otherwise be unable to fund as funding is reduced. Something could be done if government got the accountability measures right, particularly around designing measures that reward schools for recruiting free school meal pupils and investing greater funding in the children who most need it. However, recent developments are largely unhelpful in this regard. The English Baccalaureate, a group of five academic subjects uh, now featuring in school performance tables at 16, puts into reverse Labour's model and encourage schools to develop curricula that enable them to reward success wherever they found it, instead rewarding schools for their performance with the academically most able. All pupils, of course, should have access to powerful knowledge, so I have some sympathy with the thinking behind the English Baccalaureate, but rather less so with its current form. Importantly, it fails to recognise that pedagogy and not just content is the key to engaging with learning. The coalition is still constructing its full set of performance indicators, and the EBAC, as they say, is still under development. Improvements could certainly be made. The coalition is acting as you'd expect a new administration to do. This is its opportunity to be frank about the shortcomings of the education system, and it's not missed opportunities to do that. In response to those shortcomings, coalition is devolving authority and control outwards to schools, albeit with a good deal of steering at a distance, at a very rapid pace. Vince Cable has referred to a Maoist approach underpinning the government's social policies. It makes the programme of reform in many ways exciting, but relatively costly and in some instances high risk. Ministers' belief in what outstanding schools and head teachers can achieve for the sector is welcome, but perhaps displays some naivety about what they can achieve, especially in the context of such wide-ranging reform and the pressures that this will generate. For the time being, at least, we're also without any of the checks and balances that prevent massive inequalities and divisions of the sort that exist in parts of the United States. Even more than under new labour, current government policies will pose major challenges in relation to coherence and equity unless adequate funding and intelligent accountability measures are put in place. It's almost certainly impossible to fault the energy and dynamism of the coalition's first months in power, nor the boldness of their vision for an education system that drives success for all, for cooperation and collaboration between autonomous schools. But it's also impossible not to be concerned about the education system that is likely to emerge in four years' time. Yes, more innovative, in parts more confident, in parts more focused, but also perhaps more fragmented, with sharper disparities in performance, 
experience and provision in different types of schools and in different locations. It's going to offset this risk. The coalition must give greater recognition to the fact that a good quality education system depends on more than the pursuit of self-interest on the behalf part of individual schools and requires a strong interlocking network of support and challenge. A huge amount now depends on implementation. Schools, universities, third sector organisations and others involved in the school system must take the initiative in working collaboratively in staving off a race to the bottom in terms of gaining the system that is being created. Thank you very much.